Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and I have the pleasure again to have Natalia Linos with us, uh, running for the congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, to the program. So welcome, Natalia. Thank you so much, Frank, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Where did you grow up? So Frank, that's a long story. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my parents are both doctors and from Greece, and they came to the U.S. to do their residency. And they were they were you know students uh, in this country. And I, I want to raise that because what is going on right now with the the ruling uh, that international students can't stay. Um, so yeah, there were students. I was born here, but when I was just one month old. My mom became a professor at the University of Athens in Greece. So she moved back to Greece with me as a baby and two older sisters, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And I grew up in Greece. I grew up in Athens and came back to the U.S. in the summers and then moved back when I was 17 to come to college. And what possessed you to to go to Harvard? Well, growing up in Greece, um, you know, the name recognition of different universities, you know, you don't hear about all the great universities. You hear about Harvard, you hear about Yale, you hear about uh, UMass Amherst, one of our, the Greek prime ministers went there. So, you know, you do hear about a few places. So, um, you know, the the desire to go to Harvard was one, that I got in, and two, um, that they provided financial aid for for students, um, you know, both for students of, of all incomes and my parents, you know, living in Greece, not being U.S. citizens, that was a good, good thing for them. And what was student life at Harvard? Did you live on campus or? Yeah, Frank, I lived on campus um, and it was great. As someone, you know, at the time, uh, my roommate, uh, Sarah Jessup, freshman year, lived, she's from uh, right outside the district, uh, but, you know, from Massachusetts, born and raised. So I think they put us, they paired us that way so that I can have parents, you know, in her parents. I lived on campus. I was a biochem major at the beginning. And then I realized that I was actually more interested in people than just science. So I switched to social anthropology my junior year. I had many good friends from, you know, Massachusetts, but also globally. It's it's quite an international place. And, and freshman year at Harvard is is a really exciting, solidifying experience. And then you went on to get a master's in PhD. And what what was that area of expertise? In public health. So in epidemiology. Uh, so I went to also to the Harvard School of Public Health. And for both of them, I studied something called social epidemiology. The word epidemiology, people talk about it quite a bit. Uh, right now because of COVID. Well, first of all, could you define what epidemiology is? Yes. Epidemiology is the study of disease, but not just uh, populations, like looking at people as a group and saying, you know, in District 4, we have 800,000 residents, 100,000 have, you know, these health risks, hypertension, uh, cancer. So it's looking at population health. So your doctor looks at individual health epidemiologists looks at, look at patterns of disease. So for COVID, epidemiologists are the ones who are doing all the work. And, and how do they look at COVID-19? So they look at trends, they look at testing data, they look at where are there you know, increases or decreases in order to prepare people 
to, you know, to be able to say there's a hotspot here. We look at data and you make statistical analyses. So you can say that we're probably not testing everyone, but we can estimate that of these tests, you know, this number is positive. So epidemiologists don't do the frontline treatment. You know, obviously those are the doctors in the hospitals, but they support the public health infrastructure to prepare for a pandemic and to respond to it so that we know that, for example, Fall River or Chelsea has much higher rates of COVID right now than Franklin or Brookline. And, you know, you count the numbers and then you know how to respond because of those numbers. Uh, you, you mentioned you had a plan for COVID-19. Uh, briefly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't get too much in the weeds, but can you tell me the essence of that plan? Yeah. And Frank, I'll tell you what's different about this plan and other people's plans. So my plan is 26 pages long. So anybody who's listening and wants to read it, it's on my website. It talks about both um, how we reopen safely. That's the main conversation that's happening right now. How we rebuild our economy, because this isn't just a health crisis, but also a crisis for all the Americans who have been who have lost their jobs, and how we align our COVID recovery with building a better future. Frank, I see today a tragedy. I see a tragedy in how the response has happened. It's been a big failure for this country. You know, 130,000 dead, three million infected. And if we don't turn this tragedy into an opportunity to talk about things that we need to change, for example, Medicare for all, or ensuring that every worker has paid sick leave so that they don't have to choose between going to work sick and infecting their, their friends and, you know, or, or losing their jobs. These are the things that my plan talks about. It's comprehensive in that it talks about the health infrastructure, but it also talks about how do we support small businesses. It also talks about things like schools. You know, I'm a mom of three little kids, and it's been difficult for parents for the last four months, no school, um, working from home. And I do believe that a lot of parents... M mentioning yeah. schools for a moment. Yes. Um, the American Pediatric Society has apparently recommended for mental health and other reasons that children go back to school. But is there another point that they made that's about safety that's not being publicized? So that is the most critical part. The only way children can go back to school is that they have to go back safely, right? So I've been looking at the data really carefully. And Frank, this is what most people agree with. For young kids under the age of 10, they're not being seen as having severe complications. So very few get hospitalized. And they also don't seem to be the ones uh, transmitting, you know, so, so if you look at different countries that have kept schools open, there haven't been outbreaks in elementary school kids, but in high schools there have been. So there has to be a very targeted approach to saying which kids, which schools, and what measures do we need to put in place? Measures to protect the teachers, so there might be some high-risk teachers who should not be going to teach in person, or measures to ensure that those kids are not, you know, are spread out. So I agree that there's a lot, we can't see it as black and white. We will have COVID for a few years, likely. And so kids can't stay out of school for two, three years. I mean, I think that will be quite disastrous, but we can have the federal government provide guidance, provide money and the resources for the schools to reopen safely. And that's what I hope to be part of that conversation of what does it mean to reopen safely? But is it more important 
that the state and local governments provide that uh, guidance and not the federal government? I think the challenge is that you have to work obviously together. I think a lot of state and local authorities will need the money. So the federal government should definitely provide the money. The decision making can happen at the local level, but I do think that some big picture guidance should come from the federal level in terms of, you know, CDC guidance, but of course, how and when, you know, I'm a parent in Brookline and we got a survey and I appreciate that. I should have a say about how my kids and the Brookline schools should have a say because every community is different. But if the federal government said, you know, if your kids or your families decide to come back in full force, we will provide the masks, the sanitation equipment, we will pay for the additional teachers, you know, then there is something to be said about um, the federal government stepping in and supporting, because I do think public schools are already, you know, struggling. Um, we see it with teachers being laid off. So the federal government has to be at least saying that if we want schools to reopen, we need to provide um, financial and other resources. Well, you're back at Harvard now, and you hold a position as an executive director. What is that position and what do you do? So there's a center that focuses on health and human rights. And as executive director, I help ensure that the center, which has a lot of faculty researchers um, and students, a lot of doctoral students doing their, their research, that it runs you know, efficiently. I oversee staffing and our budgets and ensuring that the priorities of the center are aligned with um, a vision for the center. The center is really, has been around for over 20 years and it was established because um, the founder at the time and the, the patron recognized that HIV, which was kind of the issue happening then, that it's not, it can't be treated just by thinking about, you know, the medical care, but also health and human rights, the human rights piece, how discrimination against, you know, LGBT communities, how laws were impacting HIV, HIV transmission. So the center is interdisciplinary, it brings together lawyers and educators and researchers and doctors to think about some of the most pressing issues. For example, we do work on racism in health, on criminal justice reform. We do work on refugees, both in um, internationally, you know, in Burma and, uh, you know, in, on the borders, in Lebanon, the Syrian refugees, in Greece, on the islands. Um, and the center has historically done a lot of work, humanitarian related work. So post-conflict, post-crisis. Uh, after Katrina, there was a big study from Harvard. I don't know if you remember it, that estimated how many people had actually died. One of the lead faculty members from my center was part of that study. So it's uh, quite applied. We tried to make sure that the research that, you know, folks at Harvard are doing actually results in new policies, better action and, and changes the way we think and, and work on health. So there's a big communication role too. Professionally, there are a small number of scientists in Congress, yet in other countries, there seems to be an overwhelming number of scientists in uh, running government. Yeah. Can you speak to how important you see that we're, we're more scientists than attorneys? Thank you, Frank. And, you know, I don't think it's more one or the other, but I am running on a platform saying that there are only 14 scientists in Congress, in our Congress, and that that is a risk. It's a risk, especially today, because we're in a global pandemic, 
But it's always a risk because climate change, for example, requires scientific thinking. It requires people who understand um, numbers and figures. And I do think that a Congress that had more scientists, it doesn't need to be more than lawyers because at the moment it's such a, you know, 14, even getting us to 50, um, I think there would be a different approach to the questions. You know, everybody talks about evidence-based policy. And what does that really mean? It's someone looking at the data, looking at numbers, trends and predicting through those. So you need someone who has, who's good with math, who's good with statistics, who can look and say, you know, with COVID, for example, these are the hotspots. Nursing homes have been hit the hardest. So let's make sure that we prepare our nursing homes. Um, you know, it's a different approach to the same question. And that's what I bring that other candidates for the fourth congressional district don't bring. You know, we, during normal times, maybe, Someone with a law background or you know, local official has the skills, but today we are not in normal times. And more and more looking to the future because of climate change, because of the impact of COVID, having more scientists will result in a new type of you know, politics and legislation that hopefully is more effective and more targeted. The economic packages that were passed by Congress would you have supported all of them and, and who benefited from those packages? So I, I'm of the view that it was important um, to provide immediate assistance. So the $1,200 uh, that went out you know, to families that made a certain amount, I think it was good, it was targeted, it didn't go to everyone, it went to those who, based on their tax res returns, had a certain, um, you know, low, lower income working class families um, and some middle class families. So I thought that was really important. I think it's not enough, $1,200, uh, when we're talking about a protracted crisis. You know, people are not even back at work, uh, isn't, you know, it's not over. So I've been looking with my team at issues around our unemployment uh, insurance and how that has been, you know, the, the federal government subsidized that unemployment insurance. And that was good from an equity perspective because the $600 weekly that the federal government provided for poorer states, that actually meant, um, you know, the salaries of those folks was, was in relative terms better. So the economic packages, you know, much more has to continue. And I think targeting will be important. Um, and I'm of the view that, you know, we have to think about not only what financial you know income or money gets transferred but also what are the costs so what are the costs that families are facing in terms of rental or food or medical care right now and how do we limit those so i'm also in favor of some of the moratoriums on you know evictions things like that that result in you know families being able to keep more of that money to pay for food rather than to have to worry about being evicted let me ask this you you don't believe then that people that have money and uh, businesses uh, that are supposed to uh, succeed on their own. It seems like to me that businesses succeed if the consumer has money. Yeah. And it seems to me that the money that was given out in this virus really went to people that already had money. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? So the, I'm talking about the $1,200 that went to families. I'm talking about the total package. You're talking packages. about the bigger package. Yeah, no, the bigger package, you're right. Too much of the money that should have gone to small businesses went to the big 
you know, corporations, even, I think even Harvard maybe accepted some money and then due to public pressure returned it. Um, but I do, I, no, I agree with you. I think the targeting of the support for, you know, the small businesses was not done well. And it wasn't done well in terms of, you know, we bailed out, you know, airlines and yes, they, they suffered, but airlines are not the main, you know, driver or, or they're not my top priority. My top priority are the people. So All people right, let, and small businesses. Let yeah. me ask this. How, what is your plan to replace that revenue? When in Congress, what plan will you support to bring the deficit and to replace the money that we spent? So, you know, I've been, I'm not an economist, Frank, so I need to be honest about that, but I've been talking to economists around this and they have said that realistically, our deficit is going to grow. You know, we are in trouble, so we have to accept that the deficit will continue to grow and that the risk of not taking on more of this, you know, not allowing that to happen could put our economy into a spiral that is negative for a very long term. So we can absorb more, you know, even more sort of borrowing. And I, I agree with them on that. I do believe that we have to have a fundamental conversation around tax policy, uh, you know, a wealth tax, which has been discussed. Um, I believe that there is too much intergenerational wealth being passed down. So, you know, very inheritance laws, things like that can open up. But speaking to some economists, they say, even if we just go back to 2017 tax policy, we could, you know, close a lot of loopholes and make up for a lot of the lost, um, you know, the investments that we're going to be making. But I think it would be disingenuous to say that we're going to get out of this deficit. We're going to get out of COVID without spending. We do need to continue spending uh, in order to get out of it. Natalie, why don't you d describe what the Congressional District covers? It covers what, from Brookline down to Fall River? And who yep. is it made up of? Well, it's it, it's quite diverse in the sense that, you know, in the Brookline, Newton, Wellesley, highly educated, um, a lot of professionals who work in Boston, and you go down, to, and, and quite high income, right? It's, it's quite a divide in terms of the district has people of, of different incomes all the way to Fall River, which is, uh, has more working class families, more uh, Portuguese community. I, I feel an affinity with the Portuguese community. The Greeks and the Portuguese are quite similar. Um, and then, you know, it goes all the way to Hopkinton. And then Franklin, you know, a lot of families, right? There is, there's a lot of commonality in terms of families and educated. And, you know, I have volunteers from Rehoboth and other places, but it's quite varied. You know, the more urban parts that have access to public transportation, the less uh, urban, you know, more rural communities. And then Fall River that, and, you know, Taunton and, and Somerset and places that have been left behind by Massachusetts. One of the things that you'll be dealing with as a congressional office holder is constituent services. I take, for example, Franklin has a train station that is not handicapped accessible because since 1972, they passed a law that said you don't have to make it handicapped unless you spend more than 25% in repairs. So they don't spend 25%. So the station deteriorates and it's no longer handicapped. Uh, how do you see that issue and, and how would you handle that issue and people that call your office for yeah. congressional services? So I, 
would welcome that. I very much believe that my role as a congresswoman is to listen, to listen carefully, and to then respond. So obviously, I believe that public transportation is extremely important and rebuilding and making sure that it's accessible for everyone. It may be the concern that someone in Franklin brings up to me, but I would look across the district and make sure that that issue isn't happening elsewhere. I would be listening to folks in Fall River who might tell me that we need clean jobs. You need to do something about offshore wind because this has been our promise that this will create new jobs, but nobody is actually ensuring that we have the, you know, the permits that we need. So I plan to have a very a staff that that wants to and cares about and wants to listen to everyone in District Four. Obviously, um, I personally will also be available, but I have promised to make sure that that staff is diverse and includes people of all backgrounds, of all ages, as well as uh, you know local talking to the local officials, you know, Pat Haddad, I spoke to about Fall River and, you know, I will be speaking to her. I will be speaking to everyone at the state level, at the local level, but also to directly to, to residents. And I want to hear from them. I'll hopefully come on your show, Frank, if you let me. And, you know, may, maybe people can call in and, and, and talk to me. So being in the House of Representatives, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, whether or the Republican Party or Democratic Party, picks a few friends around her, and it seems like the decisions and the policies that they uh, put forward almost have to be accepted by the other Democratic members. Will you, will you follow uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Speaker of the House uh, wherever they want to go? That's a good question, Frank. And, you know, I'm not there yet, so I don't know I can tell you what I think I will do, and then you could ask me the question in a, in a year and you know remind me what I said. <laughs> I think Nancy Pelosi is doing a very good job. And I trust that you she do. has- Yeah, I do, I do. I mean, I think she's given- You would vote for her again. Yes, I would. Unless you think I shouldn't, and you should tell me because you'd be part of my constituency and I should listen to you. So I'd be happy to talk to you offline if you don't want to do it on air. Um, but. You know, my thinking right now is that the Democratic Party itself is quite polarized, right? You have the very progressive and the less progressive, and and there's there there are issues, internal issues. I come to this as an outsider in many ways. I haven't, you know, I'm a scientist who was at Harvard who, um, you know, is entering because of COVID on a technocratic type of platform, but I have very clear values. Um, I believe deeply in equity. I believe deeply in health as a human right. So I can articulate those. I do believe that the party has to come together, uh, depending on what happens, you know, with the Senate, right? So depending on what the the total looks like, you know, if we have Biden as president, um, then maybe there is more space for dissent and disagreement. I can promise that I will be true to my values, true to the constituents who have elected me, and I will listen, I will represent them with integrity, and I will also use data and those skills that I uniquely have to ensure that if I disagree, I will let them know. Now, the question is, do I do that publicly or privately? I still have a lot of learning to do when I get there, and Frank, it sounds like you know more, more about that, so I'd love to have a conversation before I go to Congress so you can give me some insights. You are probably familiar that the Massachusetts Democratic Party 
no longer has an invocation or a benediction. And I'm not sure whether the, uh, I think the House of Representatives uh, still has a chaplain. Do you believe you would support uh, continuing having a chaplain in the House of Representatives that would open the session with daily prayer and provide other services to members? So let me, you know, I, I don't have an answer because I haven't thought about this, but let me tell you a little bit about who I am and sort of my religious background and, and that. I think that might be valuable to the listeners. I grew up in a, a Greek Orthodox, you know, home, household, quite religious parents. My father, my father-in-law is a priest in a Syriac Orthodox faith. It's also an Eastern Arab American faith. I have deep respect for religion and for religious people, even though I'm quite progressive, and religion, religious tolerance of all forms. You know, I'm concerned about anti-Semitism in this country. I'm concerned about Islamophobia. I'm concerned about, you know, being a Greek American myself, about what's happening in Turkey in terms of religious freedom, uh, oppression of religious freedom for different groups. So that's my, you know, human rights framing that religion and the right to also be an atheist and agnostic is important and it's important for people and for their families. So I can't answer your specific question because I haven't put enough thought to it um, in terms of what the implications are, who would feel that that is a harm. But I wanted to share that personal story and about how I have a deep respect for for making accommodations, for example, in, in schools to ensure that children who are Jewish or, um, you know, halal, need halal meals have that option or that Roman Catholics can have Friday uh, fish. You know, so I, I do believe that religion is an important part of, of who we are. And so are you, bring, are you bringing your children up in the Greek faith? Oh, I, I hope nobody's listening. I do. I do take them to church once in a while. Um, because of the cultural link, it's very important to me and my, you know, and my parents um, and my in-laws are, are quite religious. And I do think that a lot of my values in terms of equity stem from uh, that faith. Uh, but, you know, when we travel, we go to, you know, if we're welcome to go into a mosque, we will, if we can go for prayers. Uh, my children are actually going, you know, I mentioned that my father-in-law is, is Arab-American. My husband is Lebanese-Palestinian. And my twins, who are three years old, go to Temple Israel. So they celebrate a lot of the Jewish traditions on Fridays. You know, we do Shabbat with uh, a Temple Israel at the FJCC there. So I'm bringing them up to be respectful of religion because I think that's so important to so many people. But I will give them a choice when they grow up to, you know. We talk about religion as people have different beliefs and some people don't believe at all, and some people do, and and I sort of still allow them to have, you know, those beliefs uh, and recognize that. That's in both question. Would you do away with the penny and the nickel because it costs so much to produce? I think that's a good idea, Frank. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but you the US, the U.S. Post Office. Yes. Would you cut the service from five days to six, or would you close a? a some post offices and communities where they really don't need to be? Oh, I, I have a deep love for the post office. I wouldn't want to cut the post office. I think it's important, the connection and 
but you know, I would look at the numbers, but I do believe that the post office, the US post office plays such an important role and in communities that, you know, may not be, you know, I think COVID has shown us how important human connection is. And the post is one way, you know, I think people are starting to write more letters and yeah, for that, for that one, Frank, I think I would, I would keep our post offices and our workers. The coronavirus certainly has solved the traffic problem uh, throughout the United States. Yes. Um, do you do you see that the traffic problem, even after the virus, there's a, 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 a remedy for it? Uh, do you see the traffic problem is still solved and people will be working more at home? Or what do you see in transportation in this district in the future? Yeah, yeah I think... Traffic is such a big problem for this district. You know, so many people I've spoken to say that they commute for an hour, an hour and a half. And it's not only that they commute for a long time, it's that it's unpredictable. Some days they'll get on the road um, and, you know, expect to be at work within an hour. And then for some reason it becomes two hours. I think traffic is a tremendous problem. And I do hope that um, one of the sort of silver linings of this COVID tragedy is that we will find new ways for people to work from home and also most importantly, invest in our public transportation. You know, I've said this before, South Coast Rail, high-speed buses, like we have to start investing in more public transportation. Frank, I live in Brooklyn and I'm privileged enough to not have a car. I rely only on public transportation and that shouldn't be only people in Brookline or a few of the towns. You know, I know the commuter rail from Franklin is, you know, the main way through a lot of, of the families there commute. And, you know, we need to have predictable uh, scheduling. You know, the commuter like, rail has to be upkept so that it's timely, so that it's um, speedy. You know, investing in high-speed rail is really important, but also investing in bus lanes and, and fast, rapid bus transit that is free is also a way to immediately provide options. You know, you could, there's a lot more that we can do. And I do hope that that we don't go back to, you know, two hours of traffic every day. You mentioned uh, you're Greek and you actually worked for the United Nations for a period of time. Looking at a world view, what, what first of all, do you think China will become the currency of the world and the United States will not? It depends on what the United States does, Frank. We have retreated from the global arena in so many ways. Yesterday, President Trump pulled out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic. It's up to us. The rest of the world wants a strong U.S. that is involved, loud, and present in international relations. That's what people want. And if I were in Congress, having worked at the United Nations, having, you know, seen different countries want that leadership, I would be trying to make sure that the U.S. becomes a leader. Again, re-entering the Paris Agreement, you know, we pulled out of the climate, re-entering the WHO, ensuring that we become the leaders on everything from human rights, uh, you know, to, to everything. Now, your question on China, I mean, yes, they're a growing economy, they're doing well, they're even doing well on the, on the climate front, but the U.S. is still the superpower it's just that we have been turning inwards because of this administration. Will Greece will Greece go bankrupt eventually? Oh, I hope not. I hope not, Frank. Um, we, you know, it's it's hard. It's been hit hard, right? There was the the recession, and then now COVID, and 
you know, austerity measures have failed. And I think that, that, you know, knowing that and having seen the Greek kind of the challenge that has happened, there was such brain drain, um, you know, from Greece during the last, you know, decade or so. Um, I do worry that COVID, you know, that's where I talked a little bit about the fact that we, you know, the deficit in this country, like we can't use austerity measures right now. We have to ensure that the U.S. rebuilds because it has failed in so many countries. I don't think Greece will go bankrupt. I think, you know, they were on their way up, but um, they handled COVID really well. That's the one great thing. (laughs) Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, L.A., children are being killed innocent children by gunfire. Gangs, to me, are being trained to be guerrillas in, in future battles with the government and the police. What is your view about city gangs and violence and shooting? As a congressperson, is there anything particular that you would want to support to change that around? Yeah, Frank, gun violence is the tragedy of our country. Uh, You know, parents being worried to send their kids to school, having to sit through and talk to your five-year-old about why you had, um, you know, a shooter drill at school, like that is not what we should be doing. Five-year-olds should not need to hide in closets and be scared, but but it's happening. So I believe that we have to fundamentally address gun violence. And there are many different levers that we can you know, we so can give me some, give yeah. me some nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts, making it much more difficult to purchase a gun. You know, some of the the common, you know, restrictions for anyone who has, uh, you know, any history, like making it difficult. We need to make it difficult to purchase a gun. I believe in removing guns from people through buy buyouts. Um, a lot of the intervention programs like Cure Violence, um, that are happening at the community level to have, um, you know, they call them community interlockers. So you have a former gang member be part of the conversation to try and, you know, prevent the, the model of cure violence uses a public health model that basically gang violence spreads like a disease does so that you can actually break the spread by putting the right people in the right place. So investing in some of those community models. But I do think, you know, the NRA, we have to sp- be bold around, you know, who can have a gun and why we don't want certain types of guns, like assault weapon, you know, assault rifles, like people who need to hunt, you know, we can talk about it, but the types of weapons that are causing this carnage are, should not be allowed to exist. So I am very anti-gun and I am, and I do think we can learn a lot from other countries because no other country has our problem. The gangs in the cities, I mean, the people that are, are creating this violence, how would you stop that from happening yeah, so, outside of, I mean, outside of guns? Guns is not going to solve no, no, the problem. Is, guns is not going to solve the problem. The problem is much deeper, but the problem is, you know, we have allowed poverty, we have allowed mental illness, we have allowed racism to, to exist. So we do need to address the, the root causes that include conversations around you know, who and what opportunities are being given to young Americans in urban settings? You know, what are their real, what is the future? What is this, you know, housing? There is a lot that can be done to, in a, you know, to, that would have an impact on gun violence 
that happens outside. I do believe we have to have a conversation about equality in this country and, and who has benefited and who has been left behind. And that will be part of the solution. It's not the entirety of it, but you know, that's my view. Going back to Harvard, I can remember as a young person, Harvard always promoted different ideas. I mean, if you had different concepts, Harvard was the place that you could express uh, those uh, different ideas in an atmosphere of fellow collegiality or, or other. Today, if a tenured professor at Harvard says the wrong words uh, about uh, people or the culture or what's going on, they get fired. I mean, it seems to me that we're moving in a direction of less tolerance of speech and and that there are groups that will actually you know, get you fired or removed if you put forward an idea or a thought or suggestion that isn't acceptable to them. Do you see, am I right, am I wrong, or, or what? tell me what's happening. So I don't know if you saw today, there's a big debate on, on Twitter around this freedom of speech because there were a number of academics and other luminaries in Harper's Magazine who basically said what you just said. And there's a lot of outrage that there should be, you know, even Noam Chomsky was there saying, you know, we need to have more conversations and allowing for people to express themselves. And then there was a lot of outrage that said, you know, we can't allow for anti-Semitic or, you know, sexist language or racist language. So I, you know, as, as a young woman, when, uh, you know, there was a big thing with Larry Summers, the president of Harvard, saying something about women not being success, you know, being able to succeed in the sciences. And a lot of people, you know, went after him and said, you know, that's, that's not appropriate for a university president to be saying. Um, I do think there is responsibility to what you say and that there has been greater awareness about how language and is used and misused and that there are microaggressions that, you know, people should be aware of. So I'm of the position that all of us have a responsibility to, to recognize our power when we have power over other people. So in a university, a tenured professor has more power than a student and their words may, you know, have a greater impact and to be thoughtful. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Um, I am not familiar with your generation at all. I'm very old, okay. Tell me, what do you believe is the quality or the essence of your generation? And and uh, we're on the we're on the the radio, um, so people can't see you. But but you are a young mother and family, and you're in in the prime of uh, bringing up children in your career. So, but how do you you see? Culturally, how does your generation look at life? So, Frank, I'm, I'll, I'll share with the audience, I'm 38, so I'm not too young. I'm not, you know, too old. I'm sort of, you know, as you said, a young mother. Um, the way I think our gener my generation, and it's not the same generation of the, you know, 18 to 20, you know, there are many sort of sub-layers of different generations. I think one of the big challenges that my generation and everybody who's younger than me is worried about is climate change. 
like fundamentally worried about what planet we are going to live in in the next you know 60 years and then what we're leaving for our children and i think there is tremendous anxiety especially among the high school students right now um, around you know the failure the failure that they see everybody before them having committed basically we had tremendous economic growth tremendous you know growth in prosperity even life expectancy has gone up you know radically and really impressively in the last you know 20 to 50 years but it has come at a cost and that's a cost of our planet so i think fundamentally one of the issues that this generation and and younger generations care about is you know have we allowed humanity to go unchecked in a way that we have destroyed our planet and we are really harming future generations so there's a big push there i also believe that income inequality is something that is top of mind uh people you know whether we're talking about the you know movement about you know against the one percent and you know recognizing that poverty and inequality um you know that it's fundamentally problematic i think this generation cares deeply about that and then racism is at the forefront right now you know after george floyd's murder um you have seen so many people come together to talk about you know police violence but more importantly structural racism and how 400 years of slavery then followed by you know jim crow and even institutionalized you know redlining things like that how we have left our country to serve some and not others so there's a deep desire i think for more inclusive future that really works for everyone and you know my generation other generations are going to fight for the rights of lgbt iq and you know there's the term intersectionality i don't know if you've heard it that it's recognizing that people are not one day a woman one day a mom one day uh black or one day an immigrant that that individuals live in those overlapping experiences and you know those that overlapping experiences defines both your values and what you want and and i think on the progressive side people just want a fair fair future for everyone there seems to be maybe 35 to 40 percent of the country that would have a diametrically opposed opinion of that and their their beliefs uh does not seem to be subject to change uh, what, what what how do you see that uh other group that that doesn't agree with you and is there any any way that you believe uh that they will ever change their mind or how would that happen so I think we need to take it to a very fundamental level, Frank, to ask the question, you know, do we have shared commitment to our children and their future? And I think everybody would say yes. Now, say on the climate front, some people just don't believe in climate change, right? And therefore, they don't think it's an existential threat because they don't believe that that's happening. But if they did believe that it was an existential threat, I think every parent cares about leaving a better future for their kids than they've had. So my approach would be really understanding where the commonalities are and then being respectful in listening and being able to sort of, you know, persuade is not the right term, but explain that, you know, if the science is showing us that this is a climate risk, 
yeah, basically, if you fail to to take it into account, there's a huge risk that you're taking. And wouldn't it be better to just accept that there is that possibility and let's work around it? Uh, but I know what you're saying. It's, it's a polarized believe, world. If you believe in that, then why wouldn't you support and say the post office should only work five days and all of that gas emission, that the trucks that they're delivering the mail on that sixth day, that's going to help climate change, isn't it? That's a good point. Frank, maybe you've convinced me that I should change my approach. No, what I have, you know, and I said I'm not an expert, but I do, that's exactly the type of approach you should it, be demanding. Isn't approach. that what you're advocating, is that yes, type of yes, approach? Yes, that's exactly the type of approach I'm advocating, that I will put down the numbers, and then I will recognize that every benefit that we see, so the benefit I was talking about was the benefit of connectivity or not losing a job, has a downside, and the downside might be emissions. And so what are the trade-offs? I think that's why you want a scientist who will actually look at the data, look at the trade-offs, and then sometimes the values will be still stronger and you say, we still believe in this, but, but it's important to have written those down. So thank you for bringing that up. Here in Franklin, Mass., you have the endorsement of Dr. Walker, Michael Walker-Jones, uh, African-American, strong supporter in education. Um, your campaign uh, is is relating to uh, professionals and people in education. Am I correct? My campaign has a lot of support from uh, people in academia in terms of who my volunteer base is. A lot of professors, a lot of students, uh, but it's not exclusively so. You know, we we um, a lot of frontline healthcare workers are also the type of people who I care deeply about, nurses, um, doctors, uh, frontline, you know, assistants. Let, let me ask this yeah. then. What is the question that I haven't asked you and you've just been dying there to, to answer? <laughs> well, first of all, I should thank uh, Dr. Walker-Jones for endorsing me publicly. I am so grateful for his support and, you know, to have more of Franklin uh, support me would be wonderful. I read somewhere, Frank, that Franklin was voted among the top uh, places to raise a family. And, you know, as a mom of a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins, I also heard you have one of the best July 4th celebrations. So um, my, you didn't ask me when I will come, when all of this is over, if I will come and see you in person and you can show me around some of your top spots and maybe, you know, convince me and my family to move to Franklin. It's It's a pretty... Pretty, uh, I, I'd love to learn more. And, you know, that's been the, the biggest shame of my campaign is that I started campaigning during COVID. So I haven't really been able to do what I would be loving to do, which is be in the same space with you right now. Um, well, that, that would lead into how can people reach you and contact you uh, and how can they volunteer? And one other question. I believe your website doesn't give a phone number. You have to give an email address even to contact you. Why should people be, have to give personal information before they even reach you? Why, why don't you have a phone number so people can simply call up to begin with and find out about you? I will write that to my team and we will update that immediately, Frank. My email is natalia, N-A-T-A-L-I-A, -A -A, at nataliaforcongress.com. 
And my website is just nataliaforcongress.com. Usually what people do is, you know, they can put a comment in there and it comes into my email, but my direct email, I'm going to, I'm going to put that on the website is just natalia at nataliaforcongress.com. Um, and yes, can, can, don't have uh, a phone number. I need to add a phone can, number. Can you, uh, Go Spell very slowly yes. in giving yes. that information. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I hope people uh, have an opportunity to, to write it down and contact you. Yes, of course. So the website is Natalia, that's N A T A L I A for Congress.com. My email um, is just my name, Natalia, N A T A L I A, at nataliaforcongress.com and I will put up a phone number on our website so that people can reach us. Uh, that's and, a great and, idea, Frank. And at some point, are you going to have traditional lawn signs? Uh, yes. And, and uh, what else, uh, if people wanted to follow, what else? Are, are, are there going to be debates among the candidates? Yes, there's going to be some debates coming up. Um, there's a few for different towns right now that have been scheduled you know there's going to be one that wellesley is scheduling and um a few of the other ones i hope that there will be uh thematic debates too there was one by the environmental league it wasn't a debate it was a forum we will have lawn signs and stickers and we'll be mailing out information but i would love for for any volunteers i am so excited to have um you know michael's support but anybody who wants to see a scientist in Congress right now, anybody who's worried about COVID and wants someone with a public health background to be part of the solution, and everybody who believes that you know we need a different type of politician right now, someone who brings a unique skill set, a unique um, experience because of my global experience, and you know that it's time to have different politics, different politicians. Please look at my website. Please get in touch. I would love your support. Thank you very much. And uh, this is uh, Frank Falvey with Frank Presents. And I hope you tune in again. We uh, will be having uh, more uh, candidates and more discussions as the election approaches. I want to thank you, Natalie and Lainus. Best, best of uh, your running. And uh, I hope you do very well in, in the uh, election. I remember Franklin votes in the gymnasium here on, uh, I say, what is it, the first Monday yes. or Tuesday? September 1st is the primary. So, September 1st is the primary. Uh, you can vote six to eight. Uh, you now can vote by mail. You can now go down to the town clerk's office and vote. Uh, and you can vote so early now that maybe you'll even miss some of the important last minute uh, discussions. <laughs> but, but whatever. Both of us want to uh, encourage people to go out and vote. Of course. Thank you for being here.